I need you to help me preach a message this morning. By All you got to do is just shut your eyes, okay? Just shut your eyes and get a feel for how dark it is with your eyes shut. Can't turn out the lights in the room, so this is the best way I can get at you. Just keep your eyes shut just a second or two longer. And now you can open your eyes. Yesterday, the youth went to Dixie Caverns over near Salem, and we went on a tour of it, and if you've ever gone through Dixie Caverns, the one hope that you have while you're in there is the lights will not go out. You know you're in a tough situation if the lights go out. And we got to the end of the tour, and the tour guy looks at us, and he says, I'm going to turn the lights out for a moment. And I could sort of feel my blood pressure rising a little bit. And so he disappears, which didn't make me comfortable either, into another area of the cavern, and the lights went out. I have never been, I don't believe, in my entire life in such darkness. You could not see your hand in front of your face. You couldn't see anybody around you. I mean, it was the old thing goes, it was pitch black darkness in there. And we stood there in that darkness for... A few minutes would seem like an hour, and we started sort of talking back and forth to each other to sort of fill that sense of darkness that was in the room. And you really had that sense that you were gripped in the darkness. And if he had said to us, okay, I can't get the lights back on, so you're going to have to find your way out of here, we would have been in tough shape trying to do that. Now, what the Apostle Paul addresses in the latter half of Romans chapter 12 is that very issue of how we are being held often in the grip of a darkness. But it's the darkness that comes when in the life's journey we get hurt by somebody else. We are disappointed by somebody that wasn't supposed to disappoint us. We are let down by somebody that shouldn't have let us down. We are betrayed by somebody that we thought we could trust and should be able to trust. And if we're not careful, what happens to us in life is we begin to be held in the grip of the darkness of our own anger and bitterness of what they have done to us. And so Paul spends a good portion of the 12th chapter of Romans addressing that issue. If you turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 12. Now we have been in the 12th chapter of the book of Romans for probably about six weeks. And the purpose of spending so much time in this chapter is, number one, I couldn't preach the whole thing in a few Sundays if I had to. It's so much packed into it. And secondly, if you can get a handle on living Romans chapter 12, you will get a basic handle on how to live the Christian life. And if you get a handle on how to live Romans chapter 12, Paul basically says to us in the opening verses, you'll know how to discover and walk in the will of God. I've had folks ask me through the years, Pastor, how do I know the will of God? How do I live the will of God? And we're all sort of looking for God to sort of step out there in our prayer time and give us a blueprint, go to this place, live at this place, do this, do that. It doesn't work that way. In Romans chapter 12, he lays out how we are supposed to live. And if we live in Romans chapter 12, God will show us his will. God will teach us his, his will. As we get the who we're supposed to be right, then the what of where we're supposed to be, what we're supposed to be doing, how we're supposed to be doing it, will all fall into place. His emphasis is getting 
the who right now. Part of getting the who right is how we relate to other people. And we used to have a joke when I was in seminary years ago preparing for the ministry that the ministry would be a great place if it wasn't for people. And a lot of times, living the Christian life would be so easy if it wasn't for people. Doing church would be so great if it wasn't for people. Listen to what he says in verse 9. Notice all of the admonitions and instructions he give us, gives us that has to do with people. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Verse 10. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Don't be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. And he goes right back into that relational thing again. Contribute to the needs of the saints. Seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Neither be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Do you see how over and over and over again, Paul keeps hitting from every angle possible this human relationship thing? What he's trying to say to us is this. If we're going to be like Jesus, then we've got to act like it in our relationships with one another. If we're going to discover the will of God and walk in the will of God, then that's going to have a direct impact as to how we relate to each other. So he just keeps hitting it from every angle. Now, verse 19, beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, to overcome evil with good. Now, my sermon outline is contained within your bulletin, and follow along if you would. Now, I'm not trying to, to just beat something in the ground, because some of you are probably sitting there saying, Pastor, you keep preaching the same thing week after week after out of this passage. But the reason I keep hitting this over and over again is because I've come convinced over the years that I've been a pastor that what tends to hold most Christians in the most bondage is their broken relationships with other folks. And we live in a day and age where many of us are coming out of broken relationships from our childhood or our adolescence, and we carry that brokenness into adulthood, and if we're not careful, it begins to impact and influence every relationship of our life. And the brokenness just begins to spread. And you see, if I've got a place of woundedness in my life from the past, it's a very good chance that somebody else is going to rub up against that place of woundedness in my adulthood as I make the journey through life, and so it just reopens the wound all over again. And often we overreact to people and we read people wrong because we're reading them through the prison of hurt from yesterday that's spilling over and continuing into today. And that's what he's addressing here. Now, this whole list of things that he says for us, these challenges, these commands that he gives us to live free from bitterness and anger and revenge is what the Bible calls the call to live a holy lifestyle. The Bible says in the book of Hebrews that without holiness, no one will see the Lord. And this is a call 
to live a holy lifestyle. And if I'm going to live in biblical holiness, that is, my life is going to conform to the attitudes and the dispositions of the Lord Jesus Christ, then I've got to live out of Romans 12. And in relationship to other people, I've got to lay down the bitterness and the anger and the revenge. I've noticed through the years when I've done marriage counseling they'll have a couple come in and sit down. I used to counsel people in my library, and then I began to get concerned they were going to use the books as flying objects, objects as I began to talk to them. So we go to a safer location. But, you know, when I would sit down with folks, so often what I would hear is, is just the anger and the bitterness one against the other coming out, that it begins to take root in our lives and in a marriage, and if it's not dealt with and addressed, it just grows and grows and grows. So what does Paul say we're supposed to do in these relationships? Notice what he says in verse 19, and all this stuff is tough, all right? I'm going to say right up front, it is tough. The reason Paul begins in verse 19 by calling beloved is every time you see a beloved know that what's coming next is going to be tough, all right? He's trying to soften it up a little bit. It's like when you go to the dentist and they put that stuff on your gum that they tell you that the shot's not going to hurt. How many of you have ever had a shot after they put the stuff on your gum and it did not hurt? It might as well be putting water on your gum as far as it's concerned. It's going to hurt. Well, that's the idea of saying, beloved, going to hurt what I got to tell you. Never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. Never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. Now, where he says there, leave it, the verb there in the Greek language literally means give room for the wrath of God. In other words, what he's trying to say to us is this. Somebody hurts us. Somebody betrays us. Somebody does us in. And we want to avenge what's happened. We want to get back at them. We want to get even. And the space in the relationship now is going to be filled with that, let me get even. What he's saying here is what I want you to do is instead of you stepping into that space and filling it with your desire and your action, your talking, whatever, to get revenge, back out of it and let God fill in the space. Step back in the relationship and let God step into the relationship and let God step into that space. Now, if I'm going to do that, it means that I have to trust God with that space. And how many of us are willing to trust God with that space? Think about it. Lord... Someone hurt me, someone did me in, someone said this, and I want to get even, and I'm so filled with, with just, you know, anger or whatever. God, there's the space, but God, I'm going to give you the space. God, I'm going to step back, and I'm going to let you fill the space. I'm not going to fill the space with me and my frustration. I'm going to let you fill the space. I'm going to trust you to fill the space. I'm going to trust you with the relationship. I'm going to trust you to handle this. I'm going to give you time to do what only you can do. I'm going to give you space to do what only you can do. Now, what's the difference between us filling the space and God filling the space? I encourage you to write this down. Number one, God acts on a constructive agenda. We act on a destructive agenda. God's agenda is constructive. Our agenda is more times than not 
destructive. Number two, God acts according to His holy justice. We act according to our own standard of justice. God acts according to His holy justice, and we act according to our own standard of justice. Third, God acts to advance His kingdom. We act to advance our own kingdom. God acts to advance His kingdom, but we act to advance our own kingdom. Next, the Lord loves people to a degree that you and I struggle to fathom. You see, when I look at folks so often, if they've hurt me, if they've done me in, if they've whatever, eaten my lunch, etc., man, I look at them and what I see is somebody I'm ticked off with, I'm angry with, I want God to take out, etc., etc. You know what God sees? He doesn't necessarily see what I see. What God sees when He looks at them is someone that, yes, is messed up, screwed up, but someone that His Son died for, shed every ounce of blood in His body for, loves. That's how God sees them. His love is so much greater. We think people cannot change. God knows His power to change people. We look at people and we say they're beyond hope. And God looks at people and knows His power to change people. Notice verse 19. He says, vengeance is mine. God is saying the vengeance belongs to me. When I try to exact the vengeance... I'm stepping into God's prerogative, God's sovereignty, God's place. I'm trying to take it out of God's hands and take it into my hands and saying the vengeance, Lord, is not yours, it is mine. And I am saying by that action that I have the wisdom more than God does to deal with this situation and this person. That's a pretty big statement. And that's why we screw it up so well when we take the vengeance on ourselves, when we hold the bitterness and try to act out of it ourselves. Now notice what he says, verse 19. He says, leave it to the wrath of God. Now, (laughs) when I was younger and I read this passage, I used to enjoy it because I thought, you know, this is leave it to the wrath of God. That means that God's got power to do them in that I don't have to do them in. And that means that God can let them have it in ways that I can't let them have it. So I'm going to sit back and watch God nuke them. And I'm going to enjoy watching God nuke them and take them out. And then as time went by, I began to get really frustrated with God because God wasn't doing what I thought he ought to be doing, and he wasn't doing it on the schedule that I thought he ought to be doing it. He got all this power to create the world. Why can't he take just one lightning bolt and strike them with him? Okay, that's all I'm asking for is one lightning bolt at the right place at the right time, and that made me just as happy as I could be. And God just didn't seem to be getting with the program. So what does he mean this business about the wrath of God? Why isn't God just going around pouring out his wrath on people and taking them out, particularly when I pray and I ask for him to take them out. Some of y'all are thinking, Lord, I don't want to be around his prayer life, and that's the way he's going. All right, so what does he mean by this business of the wrath of God? Let me give you two ideas on it, what he's speaking to here. Number one, the concept of the wrath of God in Scripture is not necessarily that God walks around 
with a basket full of lightning bolts that he is just waiting to nail people with, okay? Particularly the people that we want him to nail them with. It is rather the idea that God has set into place certain ways of how life is going to work and the results if we don't play by his rules. And there is a natural inbuilt punishment that's going to come just because that's the way God has designed life to work. That is the idea of the wrath of God. Let me give you an illustration. If I take my car and don't put oil in it and I let the oil go down and down and down and I never bother with the oil, what's going to happen to my car? Sooner or later, the whole engine is going to blow up. Because the way that car is designed, it has to have be filled with oil and the oil has to be flowing. When you and I are not living, when someone is not living according to how God has designed life to work, it's like the oil level is going down and down and down. God doesn't have to step in there and zap somebody. Life is going to blow up sooner or later because they just are not following the way he set it up to work in the first place. So that is the idea when he says, give God place and his wrath will come they're going to end up paying for what they're doing because that's just the way God set it up in the first place. It's not that God's going to step in and take them out and we're going to sit back and applaud Him. It is rather the idea that the wrath of God is just inbuilt to how life works because when we don't play the game by God's rules, we're going to end up losing the game. Second, there is a coming day of judgment. Second Chronicles chapter 5 and verse 10. Second Chronicles chapter 5 in verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Now let me read that again. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 10. For we must all, as everybody, appear where? before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether it is good or evil. Paul is telling the church at Corinth, all of us are going to someday stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And when we stand in the presence of the Lord on that day, God's going to look at us and He says, you're going to receive what you've done in this body on this earth. If it's good, you're going to be rewarded for it. And if it's bad, you're going to live with the consequences of it right then and there in His presence. And so the idea of the wrath of God in the second concept of it is that it's not going to all be experienced on this earth that we've got to answer after death someday when we have to stand before Him in judgment. Now, the temptation for all of us is to live so much focused on the present that we don't even worry about what's coming in the future. But folks, that's just plain stupid. His judgment is coming. We're all going to have to stand before Him someday and give an account in His presence to Him for how we've chosen to live our lives. And so this is not an idea of, well, it's not coming tomorrow, so I just don't have to worry about it. It's not an idea that I never have to be accountable. He's saying we are going to be accountable. 
And that day of accountability is coming. Now, in the context of this passage, what he's saying is don't you try to set up your own judgment day for somebody and don't you try to play judge and take God's place and hand out the punishment on your own. You let God do that because God knows when the appropriate time is. He knows the appropriate place. He knows how to execute the judgment and leave that in His hands. But do know that that day is coming. And folks, all of us need to live our lives with the idea that someday each of us is going to have to stand before the Lord. We're going to have to answer for, to God for how we've lived our lives. We're going to have to be accountable to Him for the decisions that we have made, for the way we've chosen to live. That day is coming. That's not popular to preach. People don't like hearing about it. But sticking our heads in the sand and pretending like it's never going to happen and not going to keep it from happening. The best thing is to be fair warned that that day is coming and then to be prepared for it when it does come. Now, notice verses 20 and 21. He says, I want you to enjoy the freedom of me setting you free from all this stuff. The idea of getting revenge, how is that going to happen? Verse 20. He says, I want you to feed your enemy. The word feed there is a Greek word that means to give crumbs to a baby. It's the idea of carefully giving someone something. And it was bad enough that he tells us we can't get revenge, but now he's telling us we've got to go over there and try to help them out. I had a teacher when I was growing up. Her name was Miss Pruitt. Miss Pruitt had about, I don't know, she had these sayings that she just gave us all the time. And one of the things she used to say to us over and over again is do it as unto the Lord. Do it as unto the Lord. If she said that to us one time, I think she must have said it to us 5,000 times when I was coming through school. Do it as unto the Lord. And what she was trying to drive into our brains and into our hearts is this. The way you treat people, the way you deal with issues, don't do it as unto them. Do it as unto the Lord. You see, the way I treat my enemy ultimately comes down, it's not an issue of me, it's not my enemy, it's the issue of Jesus. I do it to His honor. I do this to His glory. I do this because I'm trying to model Him. I do this because that's what it means to be like Jesus. Do it as unto the Lord. He says, feed your enemy. If he's hungry and he's thirsty, he says, give him something to eat and something to drink. Because as you do that, we develop the character of Jesus within us. What does he mean here by feeding and giving him something to, to drink and to eat? I think part of what he's driving at in that is give him, feed him the character of Jesus. Because so many people are hungry for the character of Jesus and don't even realize it. How many people in our world today are hungry and thirsty, even though they're doing it in crazy ways, for somebody to step into their lives and to feed them the character of Jesus? to handle a situation the way Jesus would instead of handling it the way everybody else does. I want you to think about something crazy. If they had had social media back in the day that Jesus lived, Twitter, Facebook, Snapchat, all that kind of good stuff, okay? And Jesus had had access to it on the cross... What do you think he would have been tweeting from the cross? 
What do you think he would have been posting from on Facebook from the cross? It would not have been God take them out. It would have been Lord forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. If we claim to be the followers of Jesus Christ, shouldn't our social media posts reflect the one who we say is our Lord? If I claim to be a follower of Jesus in the way that I respond to people, shouldn't it be reflective of the one who I say is my Lord? Feed them. He says the character, the attitude, the person of Jesus. Now in verse 20, he says, if you do that, you're going to be heaping burning coals of fire on their head. Now, when I read that when I was years ago, I looked at that and thought, mm, that's good. That means we could just burn a head up, knock a hair off a head in the whole nine yards. That's great. That's not what he's talking about, okay? <laughs> there was an ancient Egyptian ritual in which when a person was repentant, they took a pan of burning coals and held it on their head. And that was a symbolic way of saying, I have a change of heart and a change of mind and a change of attitude. I'm going to live my life differently. And what Paul is saying here is, listen, when you start acting like Jesus and treating people like Jesus treated people, guess what? The power of God through you is going to begin to change them is going to begin to change them. Well, it won't happen all at once, but it will begin to change them. I said to you a few weeks ago, over the book of Acts, there's this fascinating verse that says, a great number of the priests believed in him. Well, who were those great number of the of priests who 40, 50, 60 days after the crucifixion believed on Jesus, the same ones who stood in Jerusalem and called for his blood on the day of crucifixion? several months later, called upon him as Lord. Why? Because he heaped the burning coals of fire on them. He brought them to the place of change and repentance in the way that he responded to them. And notice verse 21. He says, stop being conquered by evil, but conquer evil with good. How do you conquer people with good? First of all, pray for them. Secondly, ask for the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. You see, the Holy Spirit of God has been placed inside of us to empower us to do what I've been talking about this morning. After Jesus had been crucified and rose again from the dead, He began to make various appearances. And when He appeared to His disciple Thomas, Thomas said prior to Jesus appearing to him, I've got to see his face and I've got to feel where the nail prints were in his body before I'm going to believe. So Jesus took him up on it. Night of the crucifixion, I mean night of the resurrection, Jesus comes in the room where Thomas is. And Jesus walks up to Thomas and he says, Thomas, look at my hands and see the scars. Look at my feet and see where the nails were. If you need to, Thomas, I can pull back the robe here and you can stick your hand 
into the side. Now, what was Jesus saying to Thomas? What did Thomas see when he saw all of that? He saw scars. He saw scars in his hands, scars in his feet. He saw scars in his side. And when Jesus said, you can reach in and touch this if you want to, Thomas, he was saying, you can reach in and touch the scar. Now, what is, what is a scar about? A scar is about healing. It's a scar because the wound's not open anymore. It's not bleeding anymore. A scar represents where the tissue is growing back because it's healing. And what was Jesus inviting Thomas to do? He was saying, Thomas, here, look at my hands. You can see where the hatred impacted my body. But Thomas, when you look at my hands, you're not going to see hatred. You're going to see scars, and the scars tell you, I've healed up from the hatred. Thomas, if you want to touch healing, then put your hand into my side and touch healing. Listen to my voice, Thomas. I'm not standing here in front of you full of hatred for people who hated me and killed me. You don't hear that in my voice. You don't see that in my eyes. Because I'm healed up, Thomas. And what was Thomas' response? He looked at Jesus and he said, My Lord, my God. My Lord, my God. You know what I think Thomas was saying when he said, My Lord, my God. Jesus, the healing that you've got, I want and I need. I don't want to walk around a wounded man. I want to walk around a man who's got the scars that testify to healing in my soul. And what Paul is saying to us here is, come before Jesus and say, Lord, you see the wounds from how other people have wounded me, but I don't want to live my life walking around emotionally bleeding for the rest of my life as a wounded person. I want to walk around with scars that testify to your healing grace. What do those scars look like? They look like a smile on your face. Those scars look like joy in your step. Those scars look like hope for the future. Those scars look like a spirit that is filled with peace, that spreads peace. That's what those scars look like. Oh, folks, we are not going to walk around a scarless people. We are going to walk around, yes, a wounded people, but Jesus has got something more for us than walking around as wounded people. He wants us to walk around as scarred people, people who have been healed by Him, touched by Him, changed by Him, and carrying in us the evidence of His healing touch. Let's pray. Lord, we're going to come to you right now, and Jesus, we want to ask you to first of all show us, Lord, where we're wounded. Some of us, Lord, have become experts on where we're wounded. We talk about it all the time. But it's time, Lord, for those wounds to heal. It's time, Lord, for there to be scars that testify that we've been healed. We are not gripped by the darkness anymore. We have been delivered. Delivered from what hurt us, frustrated us, and delivered to the one 
who heals us. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, I'm going to invite you right now in silent prayer before the Lord to imagine you standing before Jesus and saying to Him, Lord, hear the wounds. I want you and I want to ask you right now to transform my wounds into scars that testify that you have and you are healing me. You and God do business right now. Our heads bowed and our eyes closed. In just a moment, we're going to sing a hymn of invitation. This hymn speaks about trusting the Lord. We have to trust Him with the healing. We have to trust Him with that space that we want to fill with our revenge and vengeance. But rather we let Him fill it. And so as we sing, I want to invite you to say, Jesus, I'm just going to trust you. I'm going to trust you with that space. I'm going to trust you with that area of my life. I trust you more than I trust myself. And I trust you because you've already demonstrated that I could trust you by your death for me on the cross and your resurrection. And if you're here today and you need to give your life to Jesus and follow him, I invite you to come and trust him with all that you are, to trust him for all that he is as we sing. If you sense the Lord's leading you to become part of our church family here, I invite you to come. If the Lord is speaking to you and calling you into ministry, then why don't you yield to that calling? And if you just need to come and pray, the altar is open. Lord, may this be a time of inner healing for us. In your name, amen.